Chapter Thirteen of Ziska by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ilianthi. For the benefit of those among the untravelled English who have not yet broken a soda water bottle against the Sphinx or eaten sandwiches to the immortal memory of Cheops, it may be as well to explain that the Mina House Hotel is a long, rambling, roomy building situated within five minutes' walk of the Great Pyramid, and happily possessed of a golfing ground and a marble swimming bath. That ubiquitous nuisance, the amateur photographer, can there have his dark room for the development of his more or less imperfect plates, and there is a resident chaplain for the piously inclined. With a chaplain and a dark room, what more can the aspiring soul of the modern tourist desire? Some of the rooms at the Mina House are small and stuffy, others large and furnished with sufficient elegance, and the Princess Ziska had secured a suite of the best that could be obtained, and was soon installed there with befitting luxury. She left Cairo quite suddenly and without any visible preparation, the morning after the reception in which she had astonished her guests by her dancing and she did not call at the Gezira Palace Hotel to say good-bye to any of her acquaintances there. She was perhaps conscious that her somewhat free behaviour had startled several worthy and sanctimonious persons, and possibly she also thought that to take rooms in an hotel which was only an hour's distance from Cairo could scarcely be considered as absenting herself from Cairian society. She was followed to her desert retreat, by Dr. Dean, Armand Gervais, and Denzil Murray, who drove to the Mina house together in one carriage, and were more or less all three in a sober and meditative state of mind. They arrived in time to see the Sphinx bathed in the fierce glow of an ardent sunset, which turned the golden sands to crimson, and made the granite monster look like a cruel idol surrounded by a sea of blood. The brilliant red of the heavens flamed in its stony eyes, and gave them a sentient look as of contemplated murder, and the same radiance fitfully playing on the half-scornful, half-sensual lips caused them to smile with a seeming voluptuous mockery. Dr. Dean stood transfixed for a while at the strange splendour of the spectacle, and turning to his two silent companions said suddenly, there is something, after all, in the unguessed riddle of the Sphinx. It is not a fable, it is a truth. There is a problem to be solved, and that monstrous creature knows it. The woman's face, the brute's body, spiritualism and materialism in one. It is life and more than life. It is love. For ever and for ever it teaches the same wonderful, terrible mystery. We aspire, yet we fall. Love would fain give us wings wherewith to fly, but the wretched body lies prone, supine, it cannot soar to the light eternal. What is this light eternal? queried Gervais moodily. How do we know it exists? We cannot prove it. This world is what we see, we have to do with it and ourselves. Soul without body could not exist. Could it not? said the doctor. How then does body exist without soul? This was an unexpected but fair question, and Gervaise found himself curiously perplexed by it. He offered no reply, 
neither did Denzil, and they all three slowly entered the Mina House Hotel, there to be met with deferential salutations by the urbane and affable landlord, and to be assured that they would find their rooms comfortable, and also that Madame la Princesse Ziska expected them to dine with her that evening. At this message, Denzil Murray made a sign to Gervaise that he wished to speak to him alone. Gervaise moved aside with him. "'Give me my chance,' said Denzil fiercely. "'Take it,' replied Gervaise listlessly. "'Let tonight witness the interchange of hearts between you and the princess. I shall not interfere.' Denzil stared at him in sullen astonishment. "'You will not interfere? Your fancy for her is at an end?' Gervaise raised his dark, glowing eyes, and fixed them on his would-be rival, with a strange and sombre expression. "'My fancy for her? My good boy, take care what you say. Don't rouse me too far, for I am dangerous. My fancy for her. What do you know of it? You are hot-blooded and young, but the chill of the north controls you in a fashion, while I, a man in the prime of manhood, am of the south, and the southern fire brooks no control. Have you seen a quiet ocean, smooth as glass, with only a dimple in the deep blue, to show that perhaps, should occasion serve, there might arise a little wave? And have you seen the wild storm breaking from a black cloud, and suddenly making that quiet expanse nothing but a tourbillon of furious elements, in which the very seagulls cry, is whelmed and lost in the thunder of the billows. Such a storm as that may be compared to the fancy you suppose I feel for the woman who has dragged us both here to die at her feet, for that, I believe, is what it will come to. Life is not possible under the strain of emotion with which we two are living it. He broke off, then resumed in quieter tones. I say to you, use your opportunities while you have them, after dinner i will leave you alone with the princess i will go out for a stroll with dr dean take your chance denzil for as i live it is your last it will be my turn next give me credit for to-night's patience he turned quickly away and in a moment was gone denzil murray stood still for a while thinking deeply and trying to review the position in which he found himself he was madly in love with a woman for whom his only sister had the most violent antipathy, and that sister, who had once been all in all to him, had now become almost less than nothing in the headstrong passion which consumed him. No consideration for her peace and ultimate happiness affected him, though he was sensible of a certain remorseful pity when thinking of her gentle ways and docile yielding to his often impatient and impetuous humours. But after all, she was only his sister. She could not understand his present condition of mind. Then there was Gervaise, whom he had for some years looked upon as one of his most admired and intimate friends. Now he was nothing more or less than a rival and an enemy, notwithstanding this seeming courtesy and civil self-restraint as a matter of fact he denzil was left alone to face his fate to dare the brilliant seduction of the witching eyes of ziska
to win her or to lose her for ever, and consider every point as he would, the weary conviction was borne in upon him that, whether he met with victory or defeat, the result would bring more misery than joy. When he entered the princess's salon that evening, he found Dr. Dean and Gervaise already there, the princess herself attired in a dinner dress made with quite a modern Parisian elegance, received him in her usual graceful manner, and expressed with much sweetness her hope that the air of the desert would prove beneficial to him after the great heats that had prevailed in Cairo. Nothing but conventionalities were spoken. Oh, those conventionalities! What a world of repressed emotions they sometimes cover! How difficult it is to conceive that the man and woman who are greeting each other with calm courtesy in a crowded drawing-room are the very two who, standing face to face in the moonlit silence of some lonely grove of trees or shaded garden, once in their lives suddenly realised the wild passion that neither dared confess. Tragedies lie deepest under conventionalities. Such secrets are buried beneath them as sometimes might make the angels weep. They are safeguards, however, against stronger emotions, and the strange bathos of two human creatures talking politely about the weather when the soul of each is clamouring for the other has sometimes, despite its absurdity, saved the situation. At dinner, the Princess Ziska devoted herself almost entirely to the entertainment of Dr. Dean, and awakened his interest very keenly on the subject of the Great Pyramid. It has never really been explored, she said. The excavators who imagine they have fathomed its secrets are completely in error. The upper chambers are mere deceits to the investigator, and they were built and planned purposely to mislead, and the secrets they hide have never even been guessed at, much less discovered. "'Are you sure of that?' inquired the doctor eagerly. "'If so, would you not give your information?' "'I neither give my information nor sell it,' interrupted the princess, smiling coldly. "'I am only a woman, and women are supposed to know nothing.' With the rest of my sex I am judged illogical and imaginative. You wise men would call my knowledge of history deficient, my facts not proven. But if you like, I will tell you the story of the construction of the Great Pyramid, and why it is unlikely that anyone will ever find the treasures that are buried within it. You can receive the narrative with the usual incredulity common to men. I shall not attempt to argue the pros and cons with you, because I never argue. Treat it as a fairy tale. No woman is ever supposed to know anything for a fact. She is too stupid. Only men are wise. Her dark, disdainful glance flashed on Gervaise and Denzil. Anon she smiled bewitchingly, and added, Is it not so? Wisdom is nothing compared to beauty, said Gervaise. A beautiful woman can turn the wisest man into a fool. The princess laughed lightly. Yes, and a moment afterwards, he regrets his folly, she said. He clamours for the beautiful woman, as a child might cry for the moon, and when he at last possesses her, he tires. Satisfied with having compassed her degradation, he exclaims, What shall I do with this beauty, which, because it is mine, now palls upon me? 
let me kill it and forget it i am weary of love and the world is full of women that is a way of your sex monsieur gervaise it is a brutal way but it is the one most of you follow there is such a thing as love said denzil looking up quickly a pained flush on his handsome face in the hearts of women yes said ziska her voice growing tremulous with strange and sudden passion women love ah with that force and tenderness and utter abandonment of self but their love is in ninety-nine cases out of one hundred utterly wasted it is a largesse flung to the ungrateful a jewel tossed in the mire if there were not some compensation in the next life for the ruin wrought on loving women the eternal god himself would be a mockery and a jest and is he not queried gervaise ironically fair princess i would not willingly shake your faith in things unseen but what does the eternal god as you call him care as to the destiny of any individual unit on this globe of matter does he interfere when the murderer's knife descends upon the victim and has he ever interfered he it is who created the sexes and placed between them the strong attraction that often works more evil and misery than good and what barrier has he ever interposed between woman and man her natural destroyer none save the trifling one of virtue which is a flimsy thing and often breaks down at the first temptation no my dear princess the eternal god if there is one does nothing but look on impassively at the universal havoc of creation and in the blindness and silence of things i cannot recognize an eternal god at all we were evidently made to eat drink breed and die and there an end what of ambition asked dr dean what of the inspiration that lifts a man beyond himself and his material needs and teaches him to strive after the highest mere mad folly replied gervaise impetuously take the arts i for example dream of painting a picture that shall move the world to admiration but i seldom grasp the idea i have imagined i paint something anything and the world gapes at it and some rich fool buys it leaving me free to paint another something and so on and so on to the end of my career i ask you what satisfaction does it bring what is it to raphael that thousands of human units cultured and silly have stared at his madonnas and his famous cartoons well we do not exactly know what it may or may not be to raphael said the doctor meditatively according to my theories raphael is not dead but merely removed into another form on another planet possibly and is working elsewhere you might as well ask what is it to araxes now that he was a famous warrior once gervaise moved uneasily you have got araxes on the brain doctor he said with a forced smile and in our conversation we are forgetting that the princess has promised to tell us a fairy tale the story of the great pyramid the princess looked at him then at denzil murray and lastly at dr dean would you really care to hear it she asked most certainly they all agreed she rose from the dinner-table come here to the window she said you can see the great structure now in the dusky light 
look at it well and try if you can to realize that deep deep down in the earth on which it stands is a connected gallery of rocky caves wherein no human foot has ever penetrated since the deluge swept over the land and made a desert of all the old-time civilization her slight figure appeared to dilate as she spoke raising one slender hand and arm to point at the huge mass that towered up against the clear starlit sky her listeners were silent awed and attentive one of the latest ideas concerning the pyramids is as you know that they were built as towers of defence against the deluge that is correct the wise men of the old days foretold the time when the waters should rise and cover the earth and these huge monuments were prepared and raised to a height which was estimated would always appear above the level of the coming flood to show where the treasures of egypt were hidden for safety yes the treasures of egypt the wisdom the science of egypt they are all down there still and there to all intents and purposes they are likely to remain but archaeologists are of the opinion that the pyramids have been thoroughly explored began dr dean with some excitement the princess interrupted him by a slight gesture archaeologists my dear doctor are like the rest of this world's so-called learned men they work in one groove and are generally content with it sometimes an unusually brilliant brain conceives the erratic notion of working in several grooves and is straightway judged as mad or fanatic it is when these comet-like intelligences sweep across the world's horizon that we hear of a julius caesar a napoleon a shakespeare but archaeologists are the narrowest and driest of men they preconceive a certain system of work and follow it out by mathematical rule and plan without one touch of imagination to help them to discover new channels of interest or historical information as i told you before i began to speak you are welcome to entirely disbelieve my story of the great pyramid but as i have begun it you may as well hear it through she paused a moment then went on according to my information the building of the pyramids was commenced three hundred years before the deluge in the time of saurid the son of sabalok who it is said was the first to receive a warning dream of the coming flood saurid being convinced by his priests astrologers and soothsayers that the portent was a true one became from that time possessed of one idea which was that the vast learning of egypt its sciences discoveries and strange traditions should not be lost and that the exploits and achievements of those who were great and famous in the land should be so recorded as never to be forgotten in those days here where you see these measureless tracts of sand there were great mountainous rocks and granite quarries and sorid utilized these for the hollowing out of deep caverns in which to conceal treasure when these caverns were prepared to his liking he caused a floor to be made portions of which were rendered movable by means of secret springs and then leaving a hollow space of some four feet in height he started foundations for another floor above it this upper floor is what you nowadays see when you enter the pyramid 
and no one imagines that under it is an open space with room to walk in, and yet another floor below where everything of value is secreted. Dr. Dean drew a long breath of wonderment. Astonishing, if true. The princess smiled somewhat disdainfully and went on. Sword's work was carried on after his death by his successors, and with thousands of slaves toiling night and day, the pyramids were in the course of years raised above the caverns which concealed Egypt's mysteries. Everything was gradually accumulated in these underground storehouses, the engraved talismans, the slabs of stone on which were deeply carved the geometrical and astronomical sciences, indestructible glass chests containing papyri on which were written the various discoveries made in beneficial drugs, swift poisons, and other medicines, and among these many things were thirty great jars full of precious stones, some of which were marvels of the earth. They are there still, and some of the great men who died were interred in these caves, every one in a separate chamber, inlaid with gold and gems, and I think, here the princess turned her dark eyes full on Dr. Dean, I think that if you knew the secret way of lifting the apparently immovable floor, which is like the solid ground, and descending through the winding galleries beneath it, it is more than probable you would find in the great pyramid the tomb of Araxes. Her eyes glistened strangely in the evening light, with that peculiar fiery glow which had made Dr. Dean once describe them as being like the eyes of a vampire bat, and there was something curiously impressive in her gesture as she once more pointed to the towering structure which loomed against the heavens, with one star flashing immediately above it. A sudden involuntary shudder shook Gervaise as with icy cold. He moved restlessly, and presently remarked, "'Well, it is a safe tomb, at any rate. Whoever Araxes was, he stands little chance of being exhumed if he lies two floors below the Great Pyramid.' in a sealed-up rocky cavern. Princess, you look like an inspired prophetess. So much talk of ancient and musty times makes me feel uncanny, and I will, with your permission, have a smoke with Dr. Dean in the garden to steady my nerves. The mere notion of thirty vases of unclaimed precious stones hidden down yonder is enough to upset any man's equanimity." "'The papyri would interest me more than the jewels,' said Dr. Dean. "'What do you say, Denzil?' Denzil Murray woke up suddenly from a fit of abstraction. "'Oh, I don't know anything about it,' he answered. "'I never was very much interested in those old times. "'They seemed to me all myth. "'I could never link past, present, and future together, as some people can. "'They are to me all separate things. "'The past is done with. "'The present is our own to enjoy or detest.' and the future no man can look into. Ah, Denzil, you are young, and reflection has not been very hard at work in that headstrong brain of yours, said Dr. Dean with an indulgent smile. Otherwise you would see that past, present, and future are one and indissoluble. The past is as much a part of your present identity as the present, and the future too lies in you an embryo. The mystery of one man's life contains all mysteries, and if we could only understand it from its very beginning, 
we should find out the cause of all things and the ultimate intention of creation well now you have all had enough serious talk said the princess ziska lightly so let us adjourn to the drawing-room one of my waiting-women shall sing to you by and by she has a very sweet voice is it she who sings that song about the lotus lily asked gervaise suddenly the princess smiled strangely yes it is she dr dean chose a cigar from a silver box on the table gervaise did the same won't you smoke denzil he asked carelessly no thanks denzil spoke hurriedly and hoarsely i think if the princess will permit me i will stay and talk with her in the drawing-room while you two have your smoke together the princess gave a charming bow of assent to this proposition gervaise took the doctor somewhat roughly by the arm and led him out through the open french window into the grounds beyond remarking as he went you will excuse us princess we leave you in good company she smiled i will excuse you certainly but do not be long and she passed from the dining-room into the small saloon beyond followed closely by denzil once out in the gardens gervaise gave vent to a boisterous fit of wild laughter so loud and fierce that little dr dean came to an abrupt standstill and stared at him in something of alarm as well as amazement are you going mad gervaise he asked yes cried gervaise that is just it i am going mad mad for love or whatever you please to call it what do you think i am made of flesh and blood or cast iron heavens do you think if all the elements were to combine in a war against me they should cheat me out of this woman or rob me of her no no a thousand times no satisfy yourself my excellent doctor with your musty records of the past prate as you choose of the future but in the immediate burning active present my will is law and the fool denzil thinks to thwart me i who have never been thwarted since i knew the meaning of existence he paused in a kind of breathless agitation and dr dean grasped his arm firmly come come what is all this excitement for he said what are you saying about denzil gervaise controlled himself with a violent effort and forced a smile he has got his chance i have given it to him he is alone with the princess and is asking her to be his wife nonsense said the doctor sharply if he does commit such a folly it will be no use the woman is not human not human echoed gervaise his black eyes dilating with a sudden amazement what do you mean the little doctor rubbed his nose impatiently and seemed sorry he had spoken i mean let me see what do i mean he said at last meditatively oh well it is easy enough of explanation there are plenty of people like the princess ziska to whom i would apply the words not human she is all beauty and no heart again if you follow me she is all desire and no passion which is a character like unto the beasts which perish a large majority of men are made so and some women though the women are comparatively few now so far as the princess ziska is concerned continued the doctor fixing his keen penetrative glance on gervaise as he spoke 
I frankly admit to you that I find in her material for a very curious and complex study. That is why I have come after her. I have said she is all desire and no passion. That of itself is inhuman. But what I am busy about now is to try and analyse the nature of the particular desire that moves her, controls her, keeps her alive, in short. It is not love, of that I feel confident, and it is not hate, though it is more like hate than love. It is something indefinable, something that is almost a cult. So deep-seated and bewildering is the riddle. You look upon me as a madman, yes, I know you do, but mad or sane, I emphatically repeat, the princess is not human, and by this expression I wish to imply that though she has the outward appearance of a most beautiful and seductive human body, she has the soul of a fiend. Now do you understand me? It would take Oedipus himself all his time to do that, said Gervaise, forcing a laugh which had no mirth in it, for he was conscious of a vaguely unpleasant sensation, a chill, as of some dark presentiment which oppressed his mind. When you know I do not believe in the soul, why do you talk to me about it? The soul of a fiend, the soul of an angel, what are they? Mere empty terms to me, meaning nothing. I think I agree with you, though, in one or two points concerning the princess. For example, I do not look upon her as one of those delicately embodied purities of womanhood before whom we men instinctively bend in reverence, but whom, at the same time, we generally avoid, ashamed of our vileness. No, she is certainly not one of the maiden roses left to die, because they climb so near the sky, that not the boldest passer-by can pluck them from their vantage high. And, whether it best be a solitary maiden rose, or a princess Ziska, who shall say, and human or inhuman, whatever composition she is made of, you may make yourself positively certain that Denzil Murray is just now doing his best to persuade her to be a highland chatelaine in the future. Heavens, what a strange fate it will be for la belle Egyptienne! Oh, you think she is Egyptian, then? queried Dr. Dean, with an air of lively curiosity. Of course I do. She has the Egyptian type of form and countenance. Consider only the resemblance between her and the dancer she chose to represent the other night, the Ziska Charmazel of the antique sculpture on her walls. Aye, but if you grant one resemblance, you must also admit another, said the doctor quickly. The likeness between yourself and the old-world warrior, Araxes, is no less remarkable. Gervaise moved uneasily, and a sudden pallor blanched his face, making it look wan and haggard in the light of the rising moon. And it is rather singular, went on the imperturbable savant, that according to the legend or history, whichever you please to consider it, for in time legends become histories, and histories legends, Araxes should have been the lover of this very Ziska Charmazel, and that you, who were the living portrait of Araxes, should suddenly become enamoured of the equally living portrait of the dead woman. You must own that to a mere onlooker and observer like myself, it seems a curious coincidence. Gervaise smoked on in silence, 
his level brows contracted in a musing frown. "'Yes, it seems curious,' he said at last. "'But a great many curious coincidences happen in this world, "'so many that we, in our days of rush and turmoil, "'have not time to consider them as they come or go. "'Perhaps of all the strange things in life, "'the sudden sympathies and the headstrong passions "'which spring up in a day or night between certain men "'and certain women are the strangest.' I look upon you, doctor, as a very clever fellow, with just a little twist in his brain, or let us say a fad about spiritual matters, but in one of your more or less fantastic and extravagant theories I am half disposed to believe, and that is the notion you have of the possibility of some natures, male and female, having met before in a previous state of existence, and under different forms such as birds, flowers, or forest animals, or even mere incorporeal breaths of air and flame. It is an idea which I confess fascinates me. It seems fairly reasonable too, for as many scientists argue that you cannot destroy matter, but only transform it, there is really nothing impossible in the suggestion. He paused then added slowly as he flung the end of his cigar away, I have felt the force of this odd fancy of yours most strongly since I met the Princess Ziska. Indeed, then the impression she gave you first is still upon you, that of having known her before. Gervaise waited a minute or two before replying. Then he answered, Yes, and not only of having known her before, but of having loved her before. Love, mon Dieu, what a tame word it is, how poorly it expresses the actual emotion, fire in the veins, delirium in the brain, reason gone to chaos, and this madness is mildly described as love. There are other words for it, said the doctor, words that are not so poetic, but which, perhaps, are more fitting. No, interrupted Gervaise, almost fiercely, there are no words which truly describe this one emotion which rules the world. I know what you mean. Of course you mean evil words, licentious words, and yet it has nothing whatever to do with these. You cannot call such an exalted state of the nerves and sensations by an evil name. Dr. Dean pondered the question for a few moments. No, I'm not sure that I can, he said meditatively. If I did, I should have to give an evil name to the Creator who designed man and woman and ordained the law of attraction which draws and often drags them together. I like to be fair to everybody, the Creator included. Yet, to be fair to everybody, I shall appear to sanction immorality. For the fact is that our civilization has upset all the original intentions of nature. Nature evidently meant love, or the emotion we call love, to be the keynote of the universe, but apparently nature did not intend marriage. The flowers, the birds, the lower animals, mate afresh every spring, and this is the creed that the disciples of naturalism nowadays are anxious to force upon the attention of the world. It is only men and women, they say, that are so foolish as to take each other for better or worse till death do them part. Now I should like, from the physical scientist's point of view, 
to prove that the men and women are wrong and that the lower animals are right but spiritual science comes in and confutes me for in spiritual science i find this truth which will not be gainsaid namely that from time immemorial certain immortal forms of nature have been created solely for one another like two halves of a circle they are intended to meet and form the perfect round and all the elements of creation spiritual and material will work their hardest to pull them together such natures i consider should absolutely and imperatively be joined in marriage it then becomes a divine decree even grant if you like that the natures so joined are evil and that the sympathy between them is of a more or less reprehensible character it is quite as well that they should unite and that the result of such an union should be seen the evil might come out of them in a family of criminals which the law could exterminate with advantage to the world in general whereas on the other hand given two fine and aspiring natures with perfect sympathy between them as perfect as the two notes of a perfect chord the children of such a marriage would probably be as near gods as humanity could bring them i speak as a scientist merely such consequences are not foreseen by the majority and marriages as a rule take place between persons who are by no means made for each other besides a kind of devil comes into the business and often prevents the two sympathetic natures conjoining love matters alone are quite sufficient to convince me that there is a devil as well as a divinity that shapes our ends you speak as if yourself had loved doctor said gervaise with a half smile and so i have replied the doctor calmly i have loved to the full as passionately and ardently as even you can love i thank god the woman i loved died i could never have possessed her for she was already wedded and i would not have disgraced her by robbing her from her lawful husband so death stepped in and gave her to me for ever and he raised his eyes to the solemn starlit sky yes nothing can ever come between us now no demon tears her white soul from me she died innocent of evil and she is mine mine in every pulse of her being as we both shall know hereafter his face which was not remarkable for any beauty of feature grew rapt and almost noble in its expression and gervaise looked at him with a faint touch of ironical wonder upon my word your morality almost outreaches your mysticism he said i see you are one of those old-fashioned men who think marriage a sacred sort of thing and the only self-respecting form of love old-fashioned i may be replied dr dean but i certainly believe in marriage for the woman's sake if the license of men were not restrained by some sort of barrier it would break all bounds now i had i chosen could have taken the woman i loved to myself it needed but a little skilful persuasion on my part for her husband was a drink-sodden ruffian and why in the name of heaven did you not do so demanded gervaise impatiently because i know the end of all such liaisons said the doctor sadly a month or two of delirious happiness then years of remorse to follow the man is lowered in his own secret estimation of himself and the woman is hopelessly ruined socially and morally 
No, death is far better, and in my case death has proved a good friend, for it has given me the spotless soul of the woman I loved, which is far fairer than her body was. But unfortunately intangible, said Gervaise satirically. The doctor looked at him keenly and coldly. Do not be too sure of that, my friend. Never talk about what you do not understand. You only wander astray. The spiritual world is a blank to you, so do not presume to judge of what you will never realise till realisation is forced upon you. He uttered the last words with slow and singular emphasis. Forced upon me? began Gervaise. What do you mean? He broke off abruptly, for at that moment Denzil Murray emerged from the doorway of the hotel and came towards them with an unsteady, swaying step like that of a drunken man. You had better go in to the princess, he said, staring at Gervaise with a wild smile. She is waiting for you. "'What's the matter with you, Denzil?' inquired Dr. Dean, catching him by the arm, as he made a movement to go on and pass them. Denzil stopped, frowning impatiently. "'Matter? Nothing. What should be the matter?' "'Oh, no offence, no offence, my boy,' and Dr. Dean at once loosened his arm. "'I only thought you looked as if you had had some upset or worry, that's all.' "'Climate, climate,' said Denzil hoarsely. Egypt does not agree with me, I suppose. The dryness of the soil breeds fever and a touch of madness. Men are not blocks of wood or monoliths of stone. They are creatures of flesh and blood, of nerve and muscle. You cannot torture them so. He interrupted himself with a kind of breathless irritation at his own speech. Gervaise regarded him steadily, slightly smiling. Torture them? How, Denzil? asked the doctor kindly. "'Dear lad, you are talking nonsense. "'Come and stroll with me up and down. "'The air is quite balmy and delightful. "'It will cool your brain.' "'Yes, it needs cooling,' retorted Denzil, "'beginning to laugh with a sort of wild hilarity. "'Too much wine, too much woman, "'too much of these musty old-world records "'and ghastly pyramids.' "'Here he broke off, adding quickly,' "'Doctor, Helen and I will go back to England next week, if all is well.' "'Why, certainly, certainly,' said Dr. Dean soothingly. "'I think we are all beginning to feel we have had enough of Egypt. "'I shall probably return home with you. "'Meanwhile, come for a stroll and talk to me. "'Monsieur Armand Gervais will perhaps go in "'and excuse us for a few minutes to the Princess Ziska.' "'With pleasure,' said Gervaise. Then, beckoning Denzil Murray aside, he whispered, "'Tell me, have you won or lost?' "'Lost,' replied Denzil fiercely, through his set teeth. "'It is your turn now. But if you win, as sure as there is a god above us, I will kill you. So, but not till I am ready for killing, after tomorrow night. I shall be at your service not till then.' And smilingly, coldly, his dark face looking singularly pale and stern in the moonlight, Gervaise turned away, and walking with his usual light, swift, yet leisurely tread, entered the princess's apartment by the French window, which was still open, and from which the sound of sweet music came floating deliciously on the air as he disappeared. End of chapter 13